We're in John's gospel and we are in that portion called uh, the high priestly prayer. And so it would be as if Jesus were on this stage and he were on his knees and he's praying to his father. And we're all just watching him, just listening to what he says. It could, be, it could not be more, more sacred ground. The, the prayer is all of chapter 17. We've slowed way down to cover it in smaller chunks. Started with the first part where he speaks of his glory and the father's glory. Picked up the second part. Two weeks ago, I talked about how he's gonna get us safely home. He's praying for that. Uh, Rob last week picked up the part around sanctification that we've been set apart for a holy purpose. That God's word forms us and transforms us. So he's prayed for himself. He's prayed for the disciples that are in the room. And right now in this passage, verses 20 to 23, he turns his attention and y'all, he's praying literally for you and he's praying for me. Follow along in your Bibles. If you're not there, John 17, we've got verses 20 to 23. I'll just read it through quickly. Then we're gonna go back through it. Jesus continues and he prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you father are in, me, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This is the living word of God for us, <coughs> excuse me, today. I was in my late 20s, probably late 20s, early 30s when uh, I first read uh, the book, The Art of War by Sung Tzu. Sung Tzu's a, a Chinese military strategist of the fifth century. He wrote the, the first largest military treatise on the planet. It, it, it basically outlined battle plans for, for a millennia after that. Um, in the 80s or 90s, you know, they're, they're making publications of this military treatise. And uh, how many of you've read it? Like, I, I think I'm, there's a number of us, yeah, that has read it. No, no shock, Michael Blanton, that you've read that one as we, we all have, because when they re, redid it, or, or, or translated it and, and, and republished it, even as it is today. It's, it's not about military, it is about military strategy, but the whole thing is it's become basically a book about business strategy and leadership principles. And in the book, he talks about strategies. You'll, you'll get this, things like uh, know when to fight and when not to fight. Avoid what is strong, strike at what is weak. Know how to deceive the enemy. Appear weak when you're strong. <laughs> Appear strong when you are weak and on and on. The one overarching principle is the one though that strikes me. He writes this. To win 100 victories in 100 battles is not the pinnacle of skill. To subdue the enemy without fighting is the pinnacle of skill. <laughs> to subdue the enemy without even fighting. <laughs> that is, right, figure out a way to defeat your enemy without actually having to do it in, in, in a battle. 
And speaking of enemies, you know, it makes me think of the most brilliant, shrewd, cunning, evil enemy of all time, Nick Saban, which I, no, 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 no. That was low hanging fruit. He's retired. He's retired. Oh, I'm, I'm speaking of the devil and I'm not saying devil equals Nick Saban. Don't say that at all. I'm sorry. No, the, the, the most powerful enemy that this dark spiritual being who lives to impede and disrupt God's purposes and God's kingdom. I want you to think about what happened back in the, you know, way back in the garden of Eden. Would you call that when, when, when humanity fell and rebelled against God, would you call that like an epic battle? I think, I think that was a case of defeating your enemy without even, quote, going to battle. We find ourselves in another garden, starts in the garden, we're ending you know, here in a garden and the whole story ends in a garden. Jesus is about to step out of the upper room, cross the Kidron Valley and he'll be in the garden of Gethsemane. He's about to die in our place, buried, rise again to redeem a fallen humanity, to heal a broken world. And he's about to hand this message. Here's the message, here's, here's the life. I'm gonna hand it to you, these disciples, and you're gonna carry this message to the world. And he knows exactly how the enemy's going to seek to impede, disrupt, destroy the purposes of God and the work of God's kingdom. Now, the first blow, this is the book of Acts, is physical persecution. What's fascinating about this, and persecution continues to this day, but what, what, what it, it starts with that physical persecution, but what that really does, it just strengthens, strengthens the church, right? And then scatters the church to spread the gospel. What he, I'm not saying it's like he turned to this, but what we see he's continued to do for millennia isn't even, it, what he's continued to do is, is far greater than like a limitless supply of atomic bombs in terms of disrupting the kingdom and the, the work of the kingdom. And that is he uses division and divisiveness in the church. I mean, that doesn't even need explaining. <laughs> I mean, we all just go, mm-mm, yeah. Unless you think I'm going, yeah, a lot of these churches around here and other churches. No, I'm talking about our church. We're, we're not immune from division, disunity, divisiveness, divisiveness. Knowing how the enemy will come at the church, Jesus prays. See, this is where you go, oh my, he knows and he prays right at the point of that attack that will come and still comes even today, which makes this little part of his prayer, honestly, so, so precious to us. And if I can say it this way, so sobering. Because the text is gonna ask us this question. Are we, are we participating in answering Jesus's prayer with God? Or are we lending our hand to the enemy? Scholars have noted for some time that this particular part of the prayer has certain 
parallelisms, parallelisms, where, um, you know, it just simply means in, in certain texts, and the Psalms have these, it's all throughout our Bible, but where, the, the, you know, the, the, the author will write something here in line one, and it'll match line seven. And line two will match line six. You see what I'm saying? And they're parallel, that's all this is. And so I thought, well, how do I walk through this passage with you? And I thought, well, I'm just gonna throw up what I think is a diagram of this text that shows the parallelisms and show you why they matter. Because what they do is they, 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 the lines reinforce each other and at times help interpret what Jesus means. And so I've got it here in three breakouts. So just note, first of all, there's a promise there's a petition and there's a purpose. And then he does it again, promise, petition, and a purpose. I want you to note the parallels. He speaks here, starting with those who will believe in me through their word. I think it's parallel with the glory that you've given me and I've given to them. You see, it just stands out like a sore thumb when he talks about oneness. And then he goes, wait, he's just saying the same thing again. And then he says up here, he says, believe that you've sent me. And you go, wait a minute, he's just saying the same thing again. Do you see that? You see the parallel line. So this is how we'll work through the passage. Start with verse 20. Jesus says, I did not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I'm reading a book right now called The Great De-Churching. Uh, two pastors out of Orlando partnered with really probably one of the brightest sociologists today, Ryan Burge, and they conducted the largest survey, the most comprehensive survey of those who've left the church, okay? I've got a quote up here, it's long, but just look at it and you'll, you'll just track along with me. But right out of the chutes, they, 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 they come with guns a-blazing. In the United States, we're currently experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. About 40 million adults in America used to go to church, but no longer do, which accounts for around 16% of our adult population. For the first time in eight decades that Gallup has tracked American religious membership, more adults in the United States do not attend church than attend church. More people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the first great awakening, second great awakening, and the Billy Graham crusades combined. Uh, we, we, you know, we celebrated our 25 years as a, as a community of faith you know, last year and it just strikes me that in, in these 25 years, really the church in America has been on a steady decline, if not falling off the edge. And, 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 and I, I sense it, I feel it, you see it. I don't know that the church has ever been more in a sense, you know, irrelevant to the broader culture <laughs> than we're looked down upon in many ways. And it's easy to get discouraged but, but I, I wanna take Jesus's words and I want us to not let them escape our attention. Is the church ever at risk of non-existence? Like it's, it's just not gonna be there for our grandkids. No, absolutely not. Obviously other passages you can go to, but we'll take Jesus's prayer here. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe through their word. Not, not I pray that some believe, you know, might believe, no, will believe. And how? Through our words. <laughs> Why are you and I today Christ followers? Because God will answer the son's prayer and is answering the son's prayer and will continue to answer that prayer through your word and my word. 
Now I've said that this passage, the parallel on this is the that the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. I said this parallel with this, and then here's here's why. You know, we read that and scholars look at, you know, what, what's the glory here? And, and you know, like in all Bible studies, y'all, and I read a bunch of commentaries, you'll find there's not a lot of agreement on, on a lot of things. So you can look at, you know, some says the glory is this, some say the glory is that, some say the glory is here. I wanna suggest the glory within our context here in light of how we see it is, is not that difficult to discern. Here's where you, what you do. Go back to chapter 17 and let's look at where glory is mentioned in verse four. Jesus speaks of that glory and notice in verse four, chapter 17, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So in one sense, how, how, was, how was Jesus glorified? How did he show forth the Father's greatness, mercy, kindness, character, nature? He finished the work that God had given him to do. And then how is this glory, the glory that he has, how is it given to you and me? May I suggest? but also those who will believe in me through their words, that we now have that message. Does this make sense? So now we have a work to accomplish. What is that work? In our vernacular, it's to help people come to know Christ, follow Christ with their whole heart. That's the work. And to help them help others do the same. So this is the glory that is ours. Really y'all, when you think of purpose in life, this, you know, it's such a big topic. Um, there's, no, there's no purpose that supersedes the one purpose in this simple statement, to glorify God. Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the promise Second's the petition. I call it the petition. That's verses 21, you know, the first part of 21 and then uh, 22B, 23A. It's, it, it's, that middle, it's that middle section. He begins there in verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. And then you go down and you pick up in verse 22, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Now, in Bible study, repetition is key. And, you know, it's almost... So he's almost repetitious here to the point of redundancy, almost to the point of, well, okay, okay. You know what I'm saying? So clearly something on the heart of Jesus. And he, he would repeat himself. I know when I read it, I'm going, who's here? He's in, you're out, we're all, to, you know, it's just like, it, it, it just wraps itself upon itself. He actually starts talking about this in chapter 17 in verse 11. So I want you to just feel it even, I want you to feel it even more. I'll pick up, I'll pick up verse 11 and add it to the others. And just, here's what he's praying. He's praying to his father and he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Okay, okay, right? It's like one, 
what does it, what does it mean? I, I think we can tie it to another, and I don't mean to be disrespectful when I say this, but repetitive prayer of Christ that's clearly on his heart. He begins his upper room discourse teaching. He ends praying. What does he begin teaching? Listen to this, it'll be on the screen too. Starts in chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, this is my commandment that you love one another. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And you wanna go, okay, love one another, be one. A really simplistic overview of the Bible, of, of the New Testament, okay, this is New Testament is, you know, the gospels explain Jesus, the gospel, what it means to put your trust in Christ, who he is. Present, pre, I'll say it, present Christ. The book of Acts shows people trusting Christ and then how they live, you know, just the, the action of the Holy Spirit in people. If you took the New Testament, you know, leave out the book of Revelation now, but if you just took the New Testament letters, and this is so simplistic, but I think it holds a, a significant grain of truth. If you took the, all the New Testament letters, can I tell you what all the New Testament letters are about? Here's how to get along with each other. <laughs> it's kind of that. You, you can't miss it in the New Testament letters. Yes, there's doctrine. Yes, there's exhortation, but you can't miss that it's like, okay, now let me tell you how to get along because you're not getting along. Over 100 times in New Testament, we find that, find that phrase, one another, love one another, be kind to one another, forgive one. It's not speaking about this vertical relationship, right in, that, in those letters, it's speaking about, hey man, this is how you need to treat each other. Why? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, this is 12 and 27, says the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. When a person puts their trust in Christ, indwelt by the spirit, placed into the organic living body of Jesus. This is the image he uses. We're his, his body, we're his one body. Every one another command it is not, you know, do this to each other so that you can be one. No, no, no. Every one another command is do this to each other because you are one. You may not act like it. You don't look like it at times, but you are. Inseparable, united, one. Growth in Christ likeness, Robin, I say this a lot, is simply becoming more and more of who you already are. Here's what's mind boggling to me. When we think of our unity, we, we, we need to even actually think beyond, you know, our unity because Jesus says something and it's nothing less than this. In Christ, we are one with the Trinity. What? Read it again. We're, we're one with the 
in a mysterious way with the Trinity. We're a part of that community. How do they get along? Really well. I mean, well, they're one. You see that? Well, we're, we're in that. Unity is not just about, you know, getting along. It's, it's about our lives being living in tangible, concrete expressions of the life of the Trinity. Between Father, Son, and Spirit, there's no competition. There's no comparison. We could spend a lot of time on this. Let me say this. There is distinction. There are roles within the Trinity there is authority within the Trinity. But it is a community, and we can call it that, of mutual submission, recognized authority, and singular mission about one thing. And that takes us to this last part. We looked at the passage here and I started with, there's a promise, promise. There's a petition, petition. And now there is a, the purpose statement, purpose statement. And by the way, that's not capitalized in your Bibles. I just capitalized that so that you would know it's a purpose statement so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I'm praying this so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. The Trinity lives in mutually cooperative submission to one another purpose. So do does the church, so does the church. Unity I think the strongest point I want to make here is that, you know, our unity is not just for unity's sake. See, biblical unity always has a purpose. <laughs> it's almost in a sense bigger than the unity. <laughs> but you got to be aligned on the one purpose. It glorifies God, how? Because it reveals the nature of the Trinity. And it glorifies, it glorifies God because, and this is a mystery, but by golly, you can't miss Jesus saying it over and over again. Because the world becomes convinced at some level that Jesus was sent from God the Father by looking at the unity of his body. And this is, this is fascinating to me. And when, I, when this passage, on the, when you get to the back end, when you're reading something, always notice when you're reading it, it's like, okay, that's, you know, that's similar, similar. Okay, well, that's really the same, the same, he says the same thing. Well, he said the same thing, said the same thing. Okay, he says it again, the world made change. Oh, he says the same thing, the world made sent through me. And then you see this last piece and love them even as you've loved me. Do you see that? Do you not go, wait a minute, he changed something or why did he add that? Why that on the tail end of that? Scholars are unanimous, virtually unanimous in seeing the them is not uh, the world, 
those aligned against God, they'll, they'll know, wow, look how much he, uh, God loves us because he, he loves us like he loves the son. It's not, it's not them, it, it's focused on the disciples. We know that God so loves the world, please know that. We gotta be careful when we speak of God's love. D.A. Carson does a lot of work around this. Of When we speak of God's love, you can't just say, this is God's love and that's it. No, there's, there's different ways God loves in a different sense, in different ways. And, and you know, as you go through the Bible, you see this. Here, Jesus speaks of a measure of God's love that can, it's really hard to comprehend. It's his love for those who put their trust in Christ, bow their knee to the son. And he says that God's love for those who've trusted Christ is equal and absolute as God's love for the son. The Greek word here, even as, it, it means to the same degree. It means in the same way. What is the measure of God's love for his own? Four things, There's, there could be more, but let's just use these. I think they're helpful and holdable. It is a love without limit. That means it's infinite. This is, by the way, speaking of, of supply. <laughs> How much? Infinite. It's limitless. It is without end. That is, it's eternal. Different from infinite, it's eternal. It's time stamp on it, so to speak. There's no end, no expiration. It is without condition. That, that means it's not what we do that earns the God, what we don't do that it, it's an unconditional love that flows from the God who is love. It's holy. Well, that holds a lot, but at least I'd say this. It means it's perfect. It's flawless. It's always good. It is infinitely superior to any human love in the universe. All loves are quite frankly, but a shadow of this love. There's no greater love than to know you're loved by God in this way. In all the ways we look for love, it will never touch your heart and soul. It'll never satisfy your heart till you know this love, this love. Helps me understand why he's so concerned with our unity and oneness. Stick with me and I'm gonna wrap it up here. When the world looks at God's people and sees di division, disunity, divisiveness, uh, they are looking, they're not seeing the unity and the oneness of the Trinity. Uh, there's no evidence there that Jesus came from God. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's that. But here I think is the key, speaking of this love. The love that we extend to each other, so in other words, to, to live this oneness, must ultimately be an expression of the, of the love which we 
have received. I'm gonna say that again. The way we love one another in the body of Christ must ultimately be, how do I say it? Sourced in, it's gotta come from, it's gotta be an overflow of the love that we receive from God the Father. Do we know how much he loves us? How convinced are we that I am infinitely, eternally, immutably, unchangeably, unconditionally, perfectly, wholly loved by God. See that, we know that in Christ, which leads me to this conclusion. A people must first know they are loved by God with an infinite, eternal, unconditional, holy love in order to love each other in ways that demonstrate the love of the Trinity. So what I'm suggesting is the basis of our unity must be the love of God for us. Now, did you catch what I said there? I didn't say the basis of our unity must be our love for each other. It'll get there, but it's got to be sourced in and begin with our knowing, receiving, experiencing, and knowing deep in our bones, I am loved of God. I am, I, not because of me, but because of his grace, I'm loved of God. And when we're overcome and when that love is overflowing, that's the love we give to one another. And that's the unity by which people say, I can't believe how much God loves them. <laughs> Does he love me like that? I think Jesus came from God. Oh, now, now I know he loves me like that. Which takes us to his table. I'm gonna give you a moment to apply this, but when I say to the table, of course, I'm speaking the Lord's table. And if you're a guest of ours, we come to this table week by week. Jesus gave us an ordinance, a command to say to take this table regularly. We do it week by week. If you know Christ, you're welcome at this table. I know you may have walked in and you don't know that we, you know, we have these elements outside. If you'd like to get up and go get them, you're welcome to do that. If you put your trust in Christ. And so I want you to take the bread and the cup and I'd like you to hold them. I'm going to give two questions for you to ponder as you're holding these. Just, I want you to, I want you to just, this is you and the Holy Spirit, but I want you to think about this question. The first one would be how deep is your conviction that God loves you with the same measure of love that he loves the son? one molecule less, <laughs> the same. How deep does that sit in your heart? Just think about that as you sit with these elements.
And then the second question just goes with it, but I'm gonna ask you this. Holding these elements in your hand, how do these, how do these elements Let me see exactly how I wrote it. How do the elements you hold in your hands demonstrate just how much God loves you? So, so you're holding what Jesus says is symbolic of his body and his blood. So you hold these. I want you to think now in how, do, how, how does this inform how much God loves you? Would you sit with that for a moment? Oh, how great, deep and awesome your love for us, Father. Your love for us, Jesus. Your love for us, Spirit. Lord Jesus, your body was broken on our behalf. You spared nothing. You said no greater love has a man than that he would give his life for his friends. You gave your life for, your, for, for, for enemies at the moment. While we were yet sinful, you died for us. When we cared nothing for you, you died for us. In this we give thanks for your body broken. Receive the bread. And in this cup, symbolic of your blood, we recognize that your life was poured out. You could not give any more. This is the measure of your love. And it is without measure. Thank you, Jesus. Receive the cup. Let's stand together. Uh, this, this passage had me thinking a lot about love, the nature of love. Sometimes when we want to understand a word, it's good to think of its opposite, you know? So I was kind of thinking about this. I go, okay, there's love. What's the opposite of love? And I thought, what's the lowest hanging fruit on that one? There's love and the opposite of love is hate. You know, I go to hate. And I, but I thought, you know, that, that, it, there, there's, is there something? I'm, I don't have the definitive answer. What's the opposite of love, okay? I don't have that. But I offer this thought. Because we were in John, it had me going over to this book he wrote, decades after he wrote this one. He's an old man in exile. Listen to the echoes of our text. First John four, he says, dear friends, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love. All who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And then such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced 
It's perfect love. Perhaps the opposite of love is fear. And I, I can make some sense of that. In the context of living with each other, often when we are not loving, is it not underneath that act is fear? I'm not gonna get my way. You're not gonna, I'm gonna be misunderstood. I'm gonna lose. I don't, I don't know. It could go on and on. That's why Carl and I, we thought about response song. This just seems an appropriate response. That, that in our fear, we actually can bring the love of God for us. <laughs> and that expels that fear. And that actually enables us y'all to love one another. Let's lift our voices to that end.